Section thirty five of History of Egypt, Volume two by Gaston Maspero. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter three. The First Theban Empire, Part eleven. The town began to dwindle after the pharaoh had taken possession of his sepulchre. It was abandoned during the thirteenth dynasty, and its ruins were entombed in the sand which the wind heaped over them. The city which Amenemhiat III had connected with his tomb maintained, on the contrary, a long existence in the course of the centuries. The king's last resting-place consisted of a large sarcophagus of Quartzo's sandstone, while his favorite consort, Nofriptah, reposed beside him in a smaller coffin. The sepulchre chapel was very large, and its arrangements were of a somewhat complicated character. It consisted of a considerable number of chambers, some tolerably large, and others of moderate dimensions, while all of them were difficult of access and plunged in perpetual darkness. This was the Egyptian labyrinth, to which the Greeks, by a misconception, have given a world-wide renown. Amenemhiat III, or his architects, had no intention of building such a childish structure as that in which classical tradition so fervently believed. He had richly endowed the attendant priests, and bestowed upon the cult of his double considerable revenues and the chambers above mentioned were so many storehouses for the safekeeping of the treasure and provisions for the dead, and the arrangement of them was not more singular than that of ordinary storage depots. As his cult persisted for a long period, the temple was maintained in good condition during a considerable time. It had not, perhaps, been abandoned when the Greeks first visited it. The other sovereigns of the twelfth dynasty must have been interred not far from the tombs of Amenemhiat III and Usertasen II., they also had their pyramids, of which we may one day discover the site. The outline of these was almost the same as that of the Memphite pyramids, but the interior arrangements were different. As at Illahun and Dashur, the mass of the work consisted of crude bricks of large size, between which spine sand was introduced to bind them solidly together, and the whole was covered with a facing of polished limestone. The passages and chambers were not arranged on the simple plan which we meet with in the pyramids of earlier date. Experience had taught the pharaohs that neither granite walls nor the multiplication of barriers could preserve their mummies from profanation. No sooner was the vigilance relaxed, either in the time of civil war or under feeble administration, than robbers appeared on the scene, and boring passages through the masonry with the ingenuity of moles, they at length, after indefatigable patience, succeeded in reaching the sepulchre vault and despoiling the mummy of its valuables. With a view to further protection, the builders multiplied blind passages and chambers without apparent exit, but in which a portion of the ceiling was movable, and gave access to other equally mysterious rooms and corridors. Shafts sunk in the corners of the chambers, and again carefully closed put the sacrilegious intruder on a false scent, for, after causing him a great loss of time and labor, they only led down to the solid rock. At the present day the water of the Nile fills the central chamber of the Hawara pyramid and covers the sarcophagus. It is possible that this was foreseen, and that the builders counted on the infiltration as an additional obstacle to depredations from without. The hardness of the cement, which fastens the lid of the stone coffin to the lower part, protects the body from damp, and the pharaoh, lying beneath several feet of water, still defies the greed of the robber or the zeal of the archaeologist. The absolute power of the kings kept their feudal vassals in check. Far from being suppressed, however, the seigneurial families continued not only to exist, 
but to enjoy continued prosperity. Everywhere, at Elephantine, Coptos, Thinis, and Aphroditopolis, and in most of the cities of the Said and of the Delta, there were ruling princes who were descended from the old feudal lords or even from pharaohs of the Memphite period, and who were of equal, if not superior, rank to the members of the reigning family. The princes of Siut no longer enjoyed an authority equal to that exercised by their ancestors under the Heracleopolitan dynasties, but they still possessed considerable influence. One of them, Hapizophi I, excavated for himself, in the reign of Usertasen I, not far from the burying-place of Kiti and Tefabi, that beautiful tomb, which, though partially destroyed by Coptic monks or Arabs, still attracts visitors and excites their astonishment. The lords of Shashapu in the south, and those of Hermopolis in the north, had acquired to some extent the ascendancy which their neighbors of Siut had lost. The Hermopolit princes dated at least from the time of the sixth dynasty, and they had passed safely through the troublous times which followed the death of Papi II. A branch of their family possessed the nome of the Hare, while another governed that of the Gazelle. The lords of the nome of the Hare espoused the Theban cause, and were reckoned among the most faithful vassals of the sovereigns of the south. One of them, Thottotpu, caused a statue of himself, worthy of a pharaoh, to be erected in his loyal town of Hermopolis and their burying-places at el Bersha bear witness to their power no less than to their taste in art. During the troubles which put an end to the eleventh dynasty, a certain Kanum Hapu, who was connected in some unknown manner with the lords of the Nome of the Gazelle, entered the Theban service and accompanied Amenemhiat I on his campaigns into Nubia. He obtained, as a reward of faithfulness, Maneat Kofui and the district of Kuit Horu, the horizon of Horus, on the east bank of the Nile. On becoming possessed of the western bank also, he entrusted the government of the district which he was giving up to his eldest son, Nikiti I. But the latter having died without heirs, Usertasen I granted to Bikit, the sister of Nakiti, the rank and prerogative of a reigning princess. Bikit married Nuri, one of the princes of Hermopolis, and brought with her as her dowry the fiefdom of the gazelle, thus doubling the possessions of her husband's house. Kanumhapu II, the eldest of the children born of this union, was, while still young, appointed governor of Monayat Kufui, and this title appears to have become an appendage of his heir apparent, just as the title of Prince of Kaushu was, from the nineteenth dynasty onwards, the special designation of the heir to the throne. The marriage of Kanumhapu II with the useful Kiti, heiress of the nome of the jackal, rendered him master of one of the most fertile provinces of Middle Egypt. The power of this family was further augmented under Nikiti II, son of Kanumhapu II and Kiti. Nakiti, prince of the nome of the jackal in right of his mother, and lord of that of the gazelle after the death of his father, received from Usertasen II the administration of fifteen southern nomes, from Aphroditopolis to Thebes. This is all we know of his history, but it is probable that his descendants retained the same power and position for several generations. The career of these dignitaries depended greatly on the pharaohs with whom they were contemporary. They accompanied the royal troops on their campaigns, and with the spoil which they collected on such occasions they built temples or erected tombs for themselves. The tombs of the princes of the nome of the gazelle are disposed along the right bank of the Nile, and the most ancient are exactly opposite Minia. It is at Zawet el Mayetin and at Kamel Amar, nearly facing Hibonu, 
their capital, that we find the burying places of those who lived under the sixth dynasty. The custom of taking the dead across the Nile had existed for centuries, from the time when the Egyptians first cut their tombs in the eastern range. It still continues to the present day, and part of the population of Mania are now buried, year after year, in the places which their remote ancestors had chosen as the site of their eternal houses. The cemetery lies peacefully in the centre of the sandy plain at the foot of the hills. A grove of palms, like a curtain drawn along the riverside, partially conceals it. A Coptic convent and a few Mohammedan hermits attract around them the tombs of their respective followers, Christian or Mussulman. The rock-hewn tombs of the twelfth dynasty succeeded each other in one long, irregular line along the cliffs of Beni Hassan, and the traveller on the Nile sees their entrances continuously coming into sight and disappearing as he goes up or descends the river. These tombs are entered by a square aperture, varying in height and width according to the size of the chapel. Two only, those of Amoni Amenemhayat and of Kunum Hapu II, have a columned façade, of which all the members, pillars, bases, entablatures, have been cut in the solid rock. The polygonal shafts of the façade look like a bad imitation of ancient Doric. Inclined planes or flights of steps, like those at Elephantine, formerly led from the plain up to the terrace. Only a few traces of these exist at the present day, and the visitor has to climb the sandy slope as best he can. Wherever he enters, the walls present to his view inscriptions of immense extent, as well as civil, sepulchre, military, and historical scenes. These are not incised like those of the Memphite Mastabas, but are painted in fresco on the stone itself. The technical skill here exhibited is not a whit behind that of the older periods, and the general conception of the subjects has not altered since the time of the pyramid-building kings. The object is always the same, namely, to ensure wealth to the double in the other world, and to enable him to preserve the same rank among the departed as he enjoyed among the living, hence sowing, reaping, cattle-rearing, the exercise of different trades, the preparation and bringing of offerings, are all represented with the same minuteness as formerly. But a new element has been added to the ancient themes. We know, and the experience of the past is continually reiterating the lesson, that the most careful precautions and the most conscientious observation of customs were not sufficient to perpetuate the worship of ancestors. The day was bound to come when not only the descendants of Kunumhapu, but a crowd of curious or indifferent strangers, would visit his tomb. He desired that they should know his genealogy, his private and public virtues, his famous deeds, his court titles and dignities, the extent of his wealth, and, in order that no detail should be omitted, he relates all that he did, or he gives the impression of it upon a wall. In a long account of two hundred and twenty-two lines, he gives a résumé of his family history, introducing extracts from his archives, to show the favors received by his ancestors from the hands of their sovereigns. Amoni and Kiti, who were, it appears, the warriors of their race, have everywhere recounted the episodes of their military career, the movements of their troops, their hand-to-hand -hand fights, and the fortresses to which they laid siege. The scions of the house of the gazelle and of the hare, who shared with Pharaoh himself the possession of the soil of Egypt, were no mere princely ciphers. They had a tenacious spirit, a warlike disposition, and insatiable desire for enlarging their borders, together with sufficient ability to realize their aims by court intrigues or advantageous marriage alliances. 
we can easily picture from their history what Egyptian feudalism really was, what were its component elements, what were the resources it had at its disposal, and we may well be astonished when we consider the power and tact which the pharaohs must have displayed in keeping such vassals in check during two centuries. End of section 35. Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.